Overnight, Americans of Japanese ancestry were looked at with suspicion and fear and outright hatred simply because we look like the people that bombed Pearl Harbor, when, in fact, we had absolutely nothing to do with it, George Takai. His experience is a one of a few, but one of an estimated 120,000 Japanese-American stories who experienced the results of Executive Order 9066. This order was used to remove anyone that the government felt had potential to become an enemy, combatant, or, you know, was it really? While the potential threat was possible, did it really excuse the mass internment of immigrants and their families? We'll be looking at, back at World War II, Pearl Harbor, and what led to the camps within the United States and the life on them today on another episode of The Remedial Scholar. That's ancient history. I feel I was denied, critical, need to know information. It belongs in a museum, bro. Stop skipping your remedial class. Welcome back, everyone. I am your host, Levi, and this, of course, is The Remedial Scholar. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for your continued support. I love you all. This episode is a request by one of our listeners, so thank you for the suggestion, Doc. On that note, I hope everybody had a good Veterans Day weekend. Thank you to all those who have served both at the same time and who paved the way for me and my time in. Doc, like myself, uh, is a Navy vet, so I just wanted to make that connection before I got too far along, so it wasn't such a random segue as you might have originally believed. I know it might seem counterintuitive to do an episode that sheds light on one of the less favorable aspects of the United States military history around this time, and even weirder to think that the veterans, uh, thank the veterans at the same time. I think it's important to be honest about the past, and it doesn't make me less proud to know these things. I think it is honestly the opposite. People who like to downplay certain historical events that the United States was involved with so that they can feel that the United States looks better are more harmful to the country than the opposite. They might paint themselves as patriots, but that is not the case if they are willing to ignore the negatives to make themselves feel better than they are not helping anyone's image of anything. So this is also a topic I have heard about but never really dug into, so I'm intrigued to do so with you all today. Before we get to that, of course, the housekeeping. Thank you to everyone who has given us reviews on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you have. I greatly appreciate that. If you haven't and feel so inclined to do so, that would be amazing. Otherwise, you can share the show or share the social media posts, uh, tag us, do all the things, watch YouTube, leave comments, do YouTube stuff, like, like and subscribe if you'd like. Last thing before we get into the show is the merch tab on the link tree, and if you'd like stickers, email me. Okay, that is all for that, so on to the topic at hand. So, to understand what led to the internment camps on U.S. soil, we of course need to understand World War II and a little bit of the lead-up of the involvement of the United States in it. World War II is probably one of the most known wars, and I'm not going to cover it in full, but I think it will be helpful to know about the sides involved in this particular situation. So we're going to start with a brief background of where Japan was between the World Wars, or a little bit before, set up the context of Pearl Harbor, which was, you know, the event that led to the reaction by the United States government to imprison Japanese citizens. We will then go into the camps and what life was like, who, you know, who was involved and where they were located, and then transitioning out before uh, moving into the overall impact on the people involved and, you know, the trust in government following it. So before we move straight into the involvement of Japan in either war, I just want to set a baseline of their immigration, which takes place beforehand. You may or may not remember from the samurai episode that the lockdown of the Japanese people from traveling, immigrating, and so on was pretty intense until the Meiji res Restoration in 1868. You might also remember from the Pirates' second part episode and the Samurai episode that in 1853, the United States Naval Commodore Matthew Perry, R.I.P., brought gunships to, into, the port of, into the port of Tokyo and essentially threatened Japan until they opened their ports up. This action not only opened their borders to the world, but trade with the United States and also made them realize how far behind they were with the rest of the world. It's like if you open your door one day and your neighbor just had a spaceship and you're like, wait a minute, what happened? <laughs> Where have I been? The United States' influence had inspired their quick adoption of industrialization, urbanization, which forced the farmers and many tradespeople out. These Japanese people required new ways to make a living, and many of them decided
decided to take their labor elsewhere at a potential better life, and so immigration was on. Japan did not allow legal immigration at the time, but a U.S. territory, a group of islands known as Hawaii, was the first to initialize this trend. In 1868, the General Consul of Hawaii hired around 150 laborers who were all Japanese and transported them secretly. For the next few decades, this was the norm until the 1880s when it would be more legal for them to do so. It's also kind of funny to think that while the United States was shooting one another, one another in the Civil War, the beginnings of a long and sometimes arduous relationship with Japan was forming. Anyway, between the years 1886 and 1911, estimated 275,000 Japanese immigrated to the United States and its territories. That's a very clear distinction because a lot of them stayed in Hawaii, but a lot of them went to mainland too, and everything was fine. The end. No, of course not. Post-Civil War America needed a new group of people to hate, and the influx of not just Japanese, but many other Asian groups provided that exact target. Despite the United States signing a treaty with Japan in 1894 and put the capital G signature on an already ongoing event, the states were less than pumped. Early Japanese immigrants began to uh, lease land and work as sharecroppers, mostly settling in the archipelago of Hawaii and the Pacific coast of the United States. In 1893, the San Francisco Board of Education tried to pass a segregation of Japanese-American students, but the Japanese government protested, so they withdrew it, but brought it back up again in 1906. Up until 1907, Japan had many people interested in immigration, and they held lotteries of sorts, and the winners would earn their way into the United States, like getting a passport via this lottery. In 1907, the United States and Japan made an informal agreement called the Gentleman's Agreement, um, which if you're a How I Met Your Mother fan, that might make you chuckle a little bit because that's what happened to me. The Gentleman's Agreement of 1907, in which Japan would stop issuing passports to the United States, while the United States would enact restrictions on those already living in the United States. The restrictions of this would only enable relatives of the of those living in the United States already to immigrate. The agreement was potential, you know, it was a potential solution to reduce some of the strain between immigrants and naturalized citizens and, you know, the race riots that were going on like in 1907 in the area seems like it was less of a solution to ease tensions and just kind of giving in to the United States citizens uh so they could have their way, but, you know, as they just kind of feared anything new. It was also around this time that a practice known as picture brides began to be prominent. Picture brides are when a native of a certain country has moved to another and a matchmaker uses pictures of a woman back in that native land to a potential husband. It's like a guess who and arranged marriages combined into one, like a pre-smartphone Tinder. Anyway, this practice brought an estimated two, uh, estimated 20,000 plus to the United States and made it less of single men from Japan and now those men, um, or some of them, I guess, uh, began to start families. Right before the outbreak of World War I, California passed the law, the Alien Land Law of 1913, which was a California state law that prohibited quote-unquote aliens ineligible for citizenship from owning agricultural land and or possessing long-term leases over it. The law primarily targeted Japanese immigrants as they were the main group considered ineligible for United States citizenship at the time due to discriminatory immigration laws. The law aimed to restrict Japanese immigrants' ability to establish permanent routes and economically compete with the local population. It's, uh, it reflected the anti-immigration sentiments and the xenophobia prevalent in, uh, during that era. The Alien Land Law of 1913 was one of several discriminatory measures enacted against Asian immigrants in the early 20th century. Following World War I, the Immigration Act of 1924, also known as the Johnson-Reed Act, uh, represented a significant turning point in the United States immigration policy. Enacted to restrict immigration, the law introduced a national origins quota system establishing limits on the number of immigrants based on their nationality. Quotas were deemed as a percentage of the foreign-born population from each nationality as of the 1890 census favoring immigration or immigrants from northern and western European countries while discriminating against those from southern and eastern European countries. Notably, the act targeted Asian immigrants by banning immigrants from Asia and imposing a complete ban on Japanese immigration totally. While the act did not impose quotas on immigration from the western hemisphere, it marked a substantial reduction in the total number of immigrants allowed into the United States. Last bit of anti-Asian and more aptly anti-Japanese legislation came from 
uh, came just before World War II was when that bill was introduced in 1935 to make Hawaii a state, and it was voted against. The reason was the fear that the local government might be taken over by non-white, probably Japanese-American citizens that you know this could somehow lead to the spread of communism. I don't really understand how that leap gets made, but... You know, it was made all the time in the early 20th century, so I guess I shouldn't be too surprised. Either way, by the time Pearl Harbor happened, just around 120,000 people who were either Japanese immigrants, first or second generation, second generation known as the Nusei, it stands in comparison to the Issei, which is uh, Japanese immigrant to North America. So, so Nusei is a person who has already been born in America, like born in the United States. And Issei is the person moving to the United States. So that kind of sets a baseline for Japanese immigration and the United States government's response to it after they felt it was, you know, harming the good white people of the country's way of life. Obviously, tensions are high between the average United States citizen, the U.S. government, Japanese immigrants slash Japanese American citizens, and the Japanese government, kind of. All right, so let's jump back slightly to figure out how Japan went from a country that barely talked to anyone outside their archipelago to being one of the most formidable forces of World War II. To understand the camps, I think it's only fair to understand that Japan was a very real threat to not only just the United States, but a good chunk of their targeted empire. Well, if you remember the uh, samurai episode, it wasn't exactly that Japan was weak, it was just that they were isolated. By the 1700s, the estimated population of Japan was 28 to 29 million. By the time of the Meiji Restoration took place, it was around 30 million. What these numbers mean? Well, if you consider that the United Kingdom had a population of around 11 million at the same time, or that the United States was at 38 million, you know, it kind of puts it into perspective. So, they had people, and they had plenty of tradition, skilled warrior training, they always been group of people that just gives their best effort in pretty much anything that they try to do. What the Meiji Restoration seemed to have done was focus all of the massive resources that they already had into a formidable force, and that began to, you know, absorb territories all around them while modernizing everything. I keep saying the Meiji Restoration like that's something that is exclusive knowledge, and if you haven't listened to the Samurai episode, then you probably won't know what I'm talking about, so I should probably summarize it if you haven't. The Meiji Restoration, spanning from 1868 to 1912, marked a pivotal period in Japanese history, propelling the, na uh, the nation from a feudal society to a modern industrialized world power. Recognizing the threat of Western colonization and the need for Japan to assert its sovereignty, the Meiji leaders embarked on a comprehensive program of industrialization and modernization. This transformative process included the rapid adoption of Western technologies and organizational structure leading to the development of railways, telegraph systems, factories, and a modern military. Like, infrastructure plays a big role in their catapulting into modern times. Central to Japan's preparation preparedness for world power status was the prioritization of military strengthening. The Meiji government invested heavily in building a strong and well-equipped army and navy. The successful implementation of military reforms became evident through Japan's victory in the First Sino-Japanese War, 1894-1895, and the Russo-Japanese War, 1904-1905, establishing Japan as a formidable force in East Asia. Education played a critical role in Japan's transformation as well. The Meiji leaders recognized the importance of an educated populace for technological industrial development. They established a centralized education system modeled on Western principles, emphasizing science, technology, and modern disciplines. This educational reform not only produced skill, you know, skilled workforce, but also cultivated cultivated a bunch of professionals crucial for the nation's progress. I think this is something that is obviously still true today, you know, as something that the United States education system has tried to copy in terms of just like testing well to make it kind of look like we're that smart, but we're not, you know, the United States has done a very bad job at it, and who would have thought that just taking tests isn't how you show how, you know, smart your populace is. Anyway, infrastructure development, like I mentioned before, was big, big chunk of you know, Japan's improvement, construction of modern infrastructure, including railways, ports, and communication networks, not only facilitated economic growth, but also improved domestic transportation and connectivity, essential for international trade. Now, political and legal reforms were implemented to replace the feudal system with a more centralized government structure. The Meiji construction the Meiji Constitution of 1889 introduced a constitutional monarchy and parliamentary system 
uh, marking a departure from the traditional governance, economic policies encouraging entrepreneurship, foreign investment, and trade, you know, further propelled Japan's economic growth. Alright, so Japan's imperialistic expansion in East Asia exemplified by the annexation of Taiwan after the First Sino-Japanese War and the acquisition of territories in the Russo-Japanese War underscored its growing influence and ambitions on the world stage. By the early, early 20th century, Japan had successfully positioned itself as a major player in global affairs, the foundation laid during the Meiji Restoration. Now I mentioned a couple of wars that definitely led to their increase in power and also intensity. The Sino-Japanese War was a conflict that put more modernized Japanese military against China to decide who got to control Korea, essentially. First Sino-Japanese War established Japan not only as a fighting force, but also shifted the sphere of influence uh, from China to Japan when they secured a victory in 1895. In this war, Japan also took over the Laodong Peninsula from China, but European nations put their fingers in the middle of a business that, uh, you know, Eastern nations of Asia and demanded that Japan relinquish the control of it back to China who then ultimately leased it to Russia. Russia also decided they wanted the smoke from Japan shortly after this. <laughs> Russia had long been trying to establish their eastern presence but had mostly just been held by held at Siberia by the Chinese for a long time dating back to the 18th century. So it was really only a matter of time before this newfound prominence would lead to uh, lead the two to conflict. The land that Japan had to surrender now contained a port known as Port Arthur, which Russia had been using since they leased the land from China. This was also very, very near Manchuria, which Japan was now trying to control. The Russo-Japanese War, spanning from 1904 to 1905, emerged from the imperialist ambitions of the Russian Empire and the Empire of Japan in East Asia. Fueled by tensions over the control in Korea and Manchuria, the conflict began with a surprise Japanese Navy attack on the Russian fleet in Port Arthur. The Battle of Port Arthur and subsequent land battles showcased Japan's superior military strategy and adaptability, while the decisive Battle of Tsushima in 1905 solidified Japan's naval dominance. Facing economic strain and international pressure, peace negotiations mediated by the United States President Theodore Roosevelt resulted in the Treaty of Portsmouth in September of 1905. Japan emerged victorious, gaining control over Korea and parts of Manchuria and the southern half of Tsakalan Islands. The war marked a turning point, challenging notions of racial superiority as the first instance of an Asian, na Asian nation defeating a European power in a modern war. Why did I put so many tongue twisters? The consequences included Japan's rise as a major player in the international affairs and the exposure of weakness in the Russian military, contributing to international discontent and laying the groundwork for the Russian Revolution in 1917. So that's pretty fun. Following these wars, Korea was fully annexed. Japan expanded their economic influence further out. Emperor Meiji had died in 1912, but his efforts had been realized and their goals accomplished for the most part. They didn't have major fear of Western advanced nations because they had matched it now. Two years later, with global, when global conflict broke out, Japan was actually ready to be a part of it. Now, interestingly, Japan was on the side of the Allies in World War I, known as the Entente Powers. They were on the same side as Russia, which is kind of interesting because, you know, they were just fighting. But this war provided them plenty of opportunity to help themselves push forward with their expansion goals. While most of Germany was preoccupied with the conflict in Europe, Japan was able to counter the slim German presence that did exist in the Pacific Ocean. Germany had territories in the Pacific which were used as strategic points for, for them at the time, but Japan quickly took these islands over and expelled German influences uh, during the war. In most cases, they held control deep into the 1920s before they were forced to give them back. While a lot of these territories did not last, uh, as Japan controlled territories, they did lay the seeds for further expansion of Japan in the next few decades. Now at the Paris Peace Conference in 1919, also enabled Japan to be listed as an ally for World War One, and this actually gave them the ability to make demands as a part of their effort. Some of these demands included islands like Micronesia as well as Shandong. Japan had managed to break into the complex existing relationships of European powers and politics, which is pretty impressive. And while the Anglo-Japanese alliance had ended in 1922, after the Washington Conference, this set up more treaties that were essentially the same, but as before, uh, which involved the United States, Britain, Japan, and France. In the tumultuous period between the two world wars, Japan underwent significant transformation across political, economic, and social spheres, having participated in World War I as one of the Allied powers. You know, Japan's 
engagement in the subsequent peace negotiations at the Tur Treaty of Versailles in 1919 left it with unfulfilled expectations, particularly regarding the territorial gain and racial quality clauses. The resulting disillusionment contributed to the growing sense of nationalism and militarism in Japan. The post-war years witnessed the rise of conservative and nationalistic ideas fueled by economic difficulties and social unrest, military gained increased influence, and the concept of the Showa Restoration gained traction aiming to strengthen the role of the emperor. The Taisho era, spanning from 1912 to 1926, is often characterized as a period of political experimentation with attempts to establish a constitutional monarchy that allowed for greater democratic participation while maintaining the emperor as a symbolic figure, kind of like kind of how England is right now. Japan faced a monumental challenge in 1920 when the Great Kanto Earthquake, which resulted in widespread destruction and loss of life, the aftermath prompted extensive efforts to rebuild and modernize the infrastructure further, contributing to Japan's recovery and economic growth. Throughout the 1920s, the nation experienced significant economic expansion, transitioning from an agrarian to industrialized economy with a focus on manufacturing and technological advance. However, these positive developments were accompanied by a shift towards more aggressive expansionist policies. In 1931, Japan seized Manchuria again, <laughs> citing the Mukden incident as justification. This marked the beginning of a series of aggressive territorial acquisitions in East Asia, leading to Japan's withdrawal and the League of, uh, from the League of Nations in 1933. And the subsequent invasion of China in 1937 further strained Japan's relationship with international community, escalating into the Second Sino-Japanese War and kind of kind of beginning World War II. <laughs> Just gotta get an early jump on it. The political landscape during the 1930s witnessed a consolidation of power towards the authoritarian rule with the military exerting increasing control over the government. This period was characterized by a centralization of suppression of dissenting votes as Japan continued on its path of military militarization and expansionism. These developments set the stage for active involvement in World War II where it would emerge as one of the Axis powers. Now in the 30s, Jap Japanese domestic politics saw military coups, culture of violence, further contributing to the nation's shift towards militarization. Like I said, defense agreement with Germany on the front of the Axis powers solidified Japan's stance as a core member, marking a pivotal moment in its geopolitical alignment. During the 1930s, Japan was actively involved in conflict long before the start of World War II. Like I said, the Second Sino-Japanese War, pivotal conflict that unfolded uh, between July 7, 1937 and then ending when World War II ended. The war commenced with the Marco Polo Bridge incident na near Beijing in 1937 where a skirmish between Chinese and Japanese troops escalated into a full-scale invasion of China by the Empire of Japan. This military aggression characterized by Japan's rapid advancement into Chinese territory capturing major cities and strategic areas notably the brutal occupation of Nanjing or Nanking in December of 1937, known as the Nanjing Massacre or the Rape of Nanjing, highlighted uh, the egregious atrocities committed by Japanese forces against Chinese civilians and prisoners of war. Now, in response to Japan's invasion, China mounted a determined resistance with the Chinese Nationalist Government under Chiang Kai-shek and the Chinese Communist Party led by Mao Zedong forming a united front against the common enemy. Now despite this initial overwhelming odds, Chinese for forces engaged in guerrilla warfare to disrupt the Japanese supply lines. Battle of Shanghai in 1937 was a significant early engagement showcasing the fierce Chinese defense but ultimately ended with a Japanese victory and solidification of Japanese control over eastern China. So Japan's kind of wrecking stuff right now. They're going through, they're slowly just sinking their teeth into further and further expansion on different parts of Asia. And this is all before Hitler starting to do the same thing. So which is kind of like I knew it happened, but I didn't know, I guess, I guess exactly on the timeline of when specifically it happened. So <laughs> that kind of sets the stage for who Japan is and why people were so concerned with them in world war ii like obviously we know as americans if you're listening you know that that the war in the pacific is a big deal i don't know how well that like is covered in other countries history classes but you know there's a whole hbo series about it like the pacific is very well talked about and that's all japan like it's just us fighting japan and it's a big deal so that's how they got from 
isolationist to, you know, to who they are at the beginning of World War II. Alright, so, like I said, Sino-Japanese War kind of starts in 1937. In 1939, Germany began their campaign on September 1st to invade Poland. Two days later, Britain and France didn't like it, declared war. In May 1940, Germany launches Blitzkrieg or Lightning War operations against Denmark, Norway, Belgium, and the Netherlands. We discussed this in the Ugly Carnivals episode about how many blindsided attacks they launched and how like massive of a coordinated effort it was by the Nazis to just kind of wreck everybody right away. Catch them off guard. Kind of a theme today. <laughs> um, so the Nazis in Japan along with Italy signed the tripartite pact in 1940 and that's kind of the furthest the alliance would go for Japan involved with the other two. Their militaries were majorly independent acting on their own interests. I mean Italy and, G and Germany worked together kind of but Japan's kind of on their own <laughs> in a weird way. 1941 Germany also bit off a little more of their own allies that they could chew. Operation Barbarossa where they invaded the Soviet Union actually wasn't a terrible idea at the time it obviously doesn't end well but you know it made sense for what they were trying to do at the time. Also as that's happening in 1941 the Lend-Lease Act which the United States enacted to offer their assistance from afar essentially. FDR the Franklinist of Roosevelt's was given power to offer loans, lease, or provide war materials and assistance to other countries that were deemed vital, you know, to U.S. diplomatic relations. The idea was to aid nations who were being aggressed without actually opening the checkbook. It might seem odd now, but the United States was very isolationist before both world wars. <laughs> it really seemed like the extent of the U.S. involvement at the time. Japan, meanwhile, like I said, had their eyes widen with the potential expansion of their empire. They had modernized themselves and with this modernization they needed oil. Uh, there were places in the Pacific that they felt they could get oil but they you know, were kind of weary that the United States was going to be responding to this. Japan invading Indochina was something that the United States was also not super pumped about happening. Like When it did happen they responded by halting any ongoing negotiations and trade agreements with them. And one thing that I never knew until the research for this episode is that before Pearl Harbor the United States was not only one of but the main supplier of oil steel, iron, and other resources to Japan, all of which they would use to expand their empire and eventually attack the United States was kind of ironic, but the thing that they miscalculated was essentially that they would, you know, not be able to get their own resources fast enough to support themselves. Japan at the time only produced 6% of their own oil for reference. Their war in China was one that they were hoping would bring them all the resources that China had, but it was not happening quick enough and their plan was essentially to strike the United States to eliminate the Pacific Fleet and allow themselves some time to take British Malaya and the Dutch East Indies. They also had to hope that this might forced the United States to surrender if they had you know hit the Pacific fleet perfectly and the strike being detrimental as they planned on it that was what they're like hey that might be a cool thing spoiler alert <laughs> November 26 1941 Japan presents their final proposal to the United States demanding that they lift embargoes placed on them and recognize territories that they took as Japanese territories the United States does not actually leave that an attack would occur at this time and that Japan would possess the military power to even attack the United States. They were not finished negotiating, but apparently the Japanese were done with them. In the early hours of December 7th, 1941, Tranquil Harbor at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii bore no hint of the impending cataclysm. The United States, still reeling from the Great Depression, was grappling with the global upheaval of World War II. Unbeknownst to the unsuspecting sailors, soldiers, and civilians, Japanese Navy Task Force, led by Vice Admiral Chuichi Nagumo, stealthily approached from the north. These carriers uh, that carried their planes uh, didn't use any radio. There was all like flag signals I'm assuming. They had six aircraft carriers, the Akagi, the Kaga, Soryu, Hiryu, Shokaku, Zyukako, approached under a cloak of secrecy. Like I said, maintaining radio silence, they navigated the vast expanse of the Pacific Ocean undetected. Pretty easy. Ocean's gigantic. Uh, their sights set on crippling art of the United States Pacific Fleet. The first rays of the Hawaiian sun kissed the horizon. Serenity of the morning was shattered at precisely 7.55 a.m. Tranquility of Pearl Harbor was met with the roar of engines of all of the Japanese warplanes. 183 of them to be specific. Uh, <laughs> descended upon the unsuspecting targets. Their primary aim was to 
incapacitate the military airfields, rendering the United States Pacific Fleet defenseless, and then a relentless barrage on the actual parked ships. With military air airfields in disarray, the second wave, like a merciless tempest, turned into a attention turned its attention to the mighty vessels nestled in the harbor. Battleships, cruisers, and destroyers found themselves in the crosshairs of the relentless assault. The iconic USS Arizona, symbol of American naval power, suffered a catastrophic blow when a bomb penetrated its deck, igniting its ammunition magazine in a fiery explosion. The onslaught continued. Chaos and devastation enveloped the harbor. Battleships, including the United States, Oklahoma, California, West Virginia, Mountain Mama uh, succumbed to the relentless barrage. Aircraft both on the ground and in the air became charred remnants of their former selves. The toll on human lives was catastrophic with over 2,400 Americans losing their lives and another 1,200 sustaining injuries. As the smoke began to dissipate, the devastating reality of the attack on Pearl Harbor became painfully clear. The harbor, once a symbol of American naval might, now bore the scars of an unprovoked attack. President Franklin D. Roosevelt, addressing the nation, declared famously on December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States has been thrust into war and sought to avoid up until this point and now stood unite and resolute. The events of that fateful day left an incredible mark. The events of that fateful day left an indelible mark on history, altering the course of World War II and reshaping the destiny of nations. The attack on Pearl Harbor, while a dark chapter, ignited a fervent spirit of patriotism, resilience, and it's a testament to the enduring strength of the human spirit in face of adversity, and it also ushered in a dark part of the United States history, and that leads us into our topic. Massive intensity of the attack not only surprised the United States, but it devastated their standing navy. They had targeted Pearl Harbor for a reason, Battleship Row, the entire Pacific Fleet and whatnot. As I mentioned, 2,402 people were killed while 19 Navy ships were damaged or destroyed, and that includes eight battleships. Despite this, the mission was not a rousing success as the Japanese had hoped. They didn't destroy all the ships, worse for them. Three of the aircraft carriers were not even in the port, and they were out on maneuvers, which is kind of a blunder on their part. They also were con so concerned with aircraft and battleships that they neglected a large portion of the Navy, which were the submarines. It wasn't a failure just for Japan, as the United States had actually been tracking the carriers of the Japanese Navy until they lost them around November 17th, which allowed them to, you know do the attack on in the first place the blame of the attack which even though it didn't come from come to full fruition of their wishes did still at the very least upset the american people obvi this was also something that japan underestimated the power of the most intense fan base of any military nation following the events of pearl harbor 97 percent of respondents of a poll taken between december 12th and 17th supported a declaration of war against japan also 90 percent of those same respondents stated that the united states should declare war on germany as well believing that they had something to do with contrary to mean belief hitler wasn't really mad about japan bringing the united states into the war his generals might not have been stoked about it but hitler actually given his word that germany would declare war on the united states if push came to shove hitler and his officials did want japan to attack the united kingdom held singapore which kind of kind of wonder how differently the war could have turned out had they done that but it's neither here nor there people in the united states were mad big mad some might say the next day the united states declared war on japan three days after that germany and the and italy <laughs> and the italy <laughs> declared war on the united states and things you know really escalated from there the war was not only to be fought in other places the intelligence community feared that internal attacks from the people living inside the united states which you know isn't a far-fetched idea to say the least before the war had reached united states soil the fbi had already identified people who were german italian and japanese that held potential to be enemy agents the fbi monitored monitored fbi monitored them which could mean anything i don't think it would be like a panel van outside their house like in the movies kind of monitoring probably check-in process or maybe like going through their mail something like that after Pearl Harbor, I'm guessing that these things became a little more frequent frequent, and a little more intense. Targets also expanded the individuals to their families from immigrants to American citizens of Japanese ancestry. I suspect that there had not been this major rift between the established white people in America and the new Japanese immigrants in the, last, or in the late 19th century that this process would have been vastly different. Like if it was like a bunch of German ladies in Oktoberfest milkmaid outfits to bomb Pearl Harbor, it probably, probably wouldn't have been rounding up every German sounding last name per 
you know, possessor in the United States. But maybe. <laughs> I think it's fair to say that the racial tensions from the last few decades up to this point definitely helped push the United States in the response that they made. Western coast, the United States was deemed a military zone. With this, where, you know, the Japanese immigrants settled largely soon enough, the time had come. On February 19th, FDR issued Executive Order 9066. So now all the Jedi were to be executed. Wait, no. <laughs> That's not right. This is a pretty specific coincidence, though. You know, given that George Lucas had uh, had the Jedi modeled after samurai from both early samurai films as well as their just legendary and mytholo mythologized status. I can't help but think that this order is where Star Wars Order 66 comes from. Its similarities are definitely there, but let me know what you think. Anyway, Executive Order 9066 authorized the Secretary of War under the President's authority to prescribe military areas for the protection against espionage and sabotage during World War II. This grants the Secretary of War and designed military commanders power to exclude individuals from these areas and impose restrictions on entry exit movement within them the order supersedes the responsibility of the attorney general in prohibited areas uh, prohibited and restricted areas designated in early proclamation it empowers the secretary of war and military commanders to enforce compliance with restrictions including these uh, including the use of federal troops and agents and calls on federal departments and agencies to assist in carrying out the order the order emphasizes the continuance and order emphasizes the continuance of existing authorities and responsibilities related to national security alien enemies and acts of sabotage you know the language is pretty vague which i think is intentional it expands the actual power designated into a wider scope which allowed them to get away with more to be safe from liabilities later on maybe i don't know <laughs> oh oh you thought i meant to kidnap all the japanese people <laughs> no 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 that's crazy that's crazy pants talk i wanted you to order all the japanese food classic mix-up the order 9066 also did not list any ethnic groups specifically contextually we can assume pretty much anyone outside of the japanese and maybe the germans and italians could be lumped in or left out i guess i don't think they needed to say specifically who they were after within the month after 9066 was issued, curfews began to be placed on Japanese Americans. After that, voluntary evacuations were requested, in which around 7% of the Japanese Americans in areas complied. Lieutenant General John L. DeWitt had been one the one to announce the curfews and evacuations, and his next step was to go full tilt. On March 29, 1942, DeWitt issued what is called the Public Proclamation Number no. 4. This was what began the evacuation and detention of Japanese Americans, which came to came on the heels of Public Law 503, which placed a $5,000 fine and one year in prison, potentially, on those who violated 9066. The residents were given a 48-hour notice to evacuate their homes or they would be forced from them. March 31st, 1942, assembly centers began the intake which would continue into August that same year. Assembly centers were often grounds that were not being used such as fairgrounds or racetracks. And from here, people were given the location of their relocation. This could have been one of 10 potential places. In the shuffle, many of the people being incarcerated had to sell their belongings, businesses, sometimes even their homes for pennies on the dollar they had weeks at max to settle their affairs and put together as many of their belongings as they could but they obviously had to travel light the united states government also indicated they would hold belongings for those transferred to internment camps specifically their vehicles and these were soon offered to be bought for low low prices and anyone who refused had their vehicles requisitioned for war efforts so take a major cut or you, you know, lose all of the money anyway. <laughs> so, where were they being incarcerated? Well, the first camp ever set up was at uh, Manzanar, which is located in California, nestled right between Death Valley and the Sequoia National Park, about 150 miles as the crow flies from Fresno, California. Then you have Tool Lake, California, which is a few miles from the Oregon border on the north end of California. Minidoka, Idaho, which lies just off of I-15 partway between Twin Falls and Pocatello. Let me know if I pronounced any of those places wrong, because <laughs> I probably did. Topaz, Utah. Nailed it. 
Jerome, Arkansas, also nailed it. And Poston, Arizona, or Poston, not sure. Grenada, Colorado, and Rower, Arkansas, and Heart Mountain, Wyoming, are all the other locations. Two Arkansas locations ended up being turned into one later on, and also Heart Mountain. That's one I've that's I've been there. That's a few miles away from Cody, Wyoming, and I have family that live there. It's not super pertinent, but I have seen this mountain, uh, and you know, near. This mountain is where one of the camps was created, and I remember my aunt's husband telling me one time uh, that uh, about the camp that was there. I didn't really make the connection until I was doing this research. It's kind of, kind of funny. Not really funny, but it's just interesting. Anyway, you might have some questions like, why are you not talking about Hawaii when this is, you know, where you stated a lot of Japanese people ended up settling? Great question. The Japanese Americans made such a large portion of the people in Hawaii that the government deemed it essentially a bad idea to do so because a lot of the businesses relied on the labor of the people there since they made up one third of the workforce. Hawaii itself was also under martial law at this point, which I think is probably one of the few situations where you can go, ah, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Like the, your main military port just got bombed to hack like <laughs> obviously so um anyway over 110,000 japanese americans were placed in these nine to ten camps across the mostly western united states there were you know that many in mainland united states i always assume that a group of these early japanese americans were detained but the base not like all of them which is kind of kind of trippy to me should note also that there's 11,500 people of german ancestry and 3,000 people of italian ancestry that uh, were placed in different camps across the United States as well. Main difference between those groups is that the Japanese Americans went, the family went, like everybody went, the dog, all of them. The German and Italians were focused on the suspected, you know, alien enemies or enemy aliens. And those were the only ones who by law were required to go and their families could volunteer to join them, but they didn't have to. So they were able to, you know, hold on to any property that they had. Either way, none of it's good but it makes sense but it's not great look japanese americans were detained were not given due process or even charged with anything no appeals existed and the few who managed to get litigious with their plight were thrown out pretty quickly so what was life like on these internment camps well it wasn't as bad as the camps in europe so i guess that's good uh if i was going to explain it in the most rudimentary language i could i'd say it's like the barracks that you see in any movie about world war ii where they're basic you know in basic training like if you've seen hacksaw ridge or the first captain america it's like those wooden buildings with a bunch of bunk or with a bunch of cots in it picture a rectangle layout essentially no insulation in the walls it's all just planks like it's just plank walls and cots or bunks that run the length of the building sometimes a family would get one whole building and sometimes they would do kind of kind of neat things they'd like hang sheets up and kind of create different rooms in it which is i guess you gotta do what you gotta do in that situation but uh these camps feature communal bathrooms dining rooms basically mess halls and we're enclosed by razor fence razor wire fences which is nothing says comfort like razor wire they had coal burning stoves also known as pot belly stoves which is good you know <laughs> better than what the donners had i suppose the places uh these camps were located don't exactly inspire confidence and total comfort and serenity the one located next to death valley specifically but also you know out in wyoming or in idaho these places get cold cold like and they get a lot of snow and it just seems like not the best place to live in a place that uh is basically just wood planks very bad insulation or none really people themselves actually made their camps their own in many ways like i said they were allowed which is mind-blowing that i have to use those words right there but they were allowed to run schools form their own hobby clubs uh families often stayed in the same you know cheap barracks buildings there were churches farms sports government didn't think these per people were american <laughs> This sounds pretty American to me. It wasn't popular at the time, but now I'm imagining a bunch of Japanese children playing full contact football. Some smug senator being like, nope, nope, they're not. They're doing this to trick us. They don't love the Lord's game as much as us. But they actually did play football and baseball in the camps sometimes. And they would play other schools like like schools in neighboring towns would come onto the camp and play them i mean those kids would get to go home but still got some interaction which is nice but now i'm imagining <laughs> now i'm imagining a japanese internment camp version of the longest yard and adam sandler's still in it somehow 
ridiculous imagination aside, you can actually watch a video of inside an internment camp on the Smithsonian's channel on YouTube. Landscapes are usually kind of bleak. Um, it does look like it was from like when they first started moving in, but also the land sucked, so maybe <laughs> maybe they couldn't grow good vegetation. Who knows? Life wasn't super quiet. The prison camps were not immune to incidences of violence that marred already challenging conditions. In Lordsburg, New Mexico, the arrival of prisoners by trains marked the beginning of a grim journey. Forced to march two miles at night to the camp the night of July 27, 1942, witnessed a tragic turn. Toshio Kabata and Hirota Isamura, two elderly Japanese Americans, lost their lives during the march. The official narrative presented by Sentry claimed that they were attempting to escape, but later testimonies from the Japanese Americans revealed a different truth that the men were disabled and struggling during the, you know, real messy trek. Despite the outcry, the Sentry was, the sentry was acquitted by the court martial board. Board. August 4, 1942, brought forth a riot at Santa Anita Assembly Center, fueled by grievances over inadequate rations, overcrowding. Meanwhile, at California's Manzanar War Relocation Center, tensions escalated to a point where Fred Tayama, a leader of the Japanese Americans, Citizen Lee was viciously beaten by six men. The JACL members were perceived as supporters of the camp's administration, leading to an atmosphere of animosity. Specter of violence loomed over the Topaz Relocation Center as well. In one unfortunate incident, 63-year-old prisoner James Hatsuki Wakasa was shot and killed by military police simply for walking near the perimeter fence. Two months later, a couple faced gunfire for the seemingly innocuous act of strolling near the same fence, highlighting the disproportionate response to, you know, perceived threat. Situation at Tool Lake, or maybe Tule, Tool Lake Segregation Center in Northern California reached a boiling point in October 1943. The Army deployed tanks and soldiers to quell protests among Japanese-American prisoners who were striking due to food shortages, unsafe working conditions that resulted in accidental death. Tragically, on March on May 24th, 1943, James Okamoto, a 30-year-old prisoner driving a construction truck at the same camp, was fatally shot by a guard, adding another layer of sorrow to the already troubled history of the internment camp, in addition to the churches and some educations going on. So those are some of the, the more violent interactions going on. There's also peaceful time. They had churches and they had some education going on. There were instruments that were, you know, able to be taught. They become, they could become boy or girl scouts, had opportunities to become you know, possible skilled workers to use those skilled. Carpenters were able to work on camps. Former nurses resumed nursing duties, acting as like the doctor's office essentially. Former teachers taught on the camps. They actually given materials to use for teaching because the United States understood that at the time, at the very least, that they could get them to be more Americanized if they did that. Literally, and Americanization classes were added to the curriculum to be taught at the camps. They also had school dances, clubs, bands. You know, for better or worse, they tried to emulate the life that they had been ripped from, and it seemed that they were sticking to the American life that they had before, contrary to the fear of the people that put them there. Obviously, the schools were not to the standard of a typical school system, and the classes were overcrowded because there wasn't an even balance of students to teachers. Worst thing that happened was Japanese-American in the whole ordeal, in my opinion, is that the land that they placed their trust in and moved to, trust their children to, well, now it did not trust them. It took their dignity, it took their money, it made them sell their lives, uproot them to some strange and desolate landscape out in the boonies, didn't even think to figure out who was allegiant to who. After a year or two of the camps being open, members were given loyalty tests and people who did favorably were allowed to leave for work in some cases, others allowed to enlist in the military. Even, you know, even after some camps closed, what life did they have to return to, though? I've read so many stories about the farmers whose land was left in ruins since there was no one there to work it. Upwards of the three years that they were gone, or the shop owners that had to sell their businesses for a small percentage of what was worth out of desperation. And it's also a misstep to say that because they had shelter and adequate food, that they were okay. I mean, I guess if you, like, the baseline of what was okay and not okay and not okay is on the side of the Nazi concentration camps, then yeah, I guess they're pretty okay. But <laughs> you know, many had poor health issues in these areas, and either due to the climate or the not great food, limited freedom. Maybe it's a bit of the mouse utopia going on, but... A lot of the formerly detained would suffer health issues after leaving the camps. As the world 
As the war raged on, elsewhere on the silly blue marble hurtling through space, there were some litigations going on in which people were challenging some the constitutionality of the internment camps. One case was taken all the way to the Supreme Court in 1944, which they ruled that the internment camps were constitutional, but this is where a lot of the loyalty tests that I mentioned came from. Uh, people who did well in those could leave and most of them headed inland to like the Midwest as technically the West Coast was still a war zone suspect they were cautious of it happening again so just probably steer clear of that area others were able to leave to attend college and in the same supreme court decision they also clarified the government could not detain a united states citizen whose loyalty was recognized by the government which is kind of confusing because the government decides if you're loyal or not <laughs> and they're not like they have to recognize if they decide you're loyal or not and that doesn't sound fair to me now some of the questions included on the uh loyalty tests were like where they had been educated as in in the united states or japan do you play baseball are you buddhist or are you christian the final questions were the particularly pointed ones question 27 are you willing to serve in the armed forces of the united states on combat duty wherever ordered question 28 will you swear unqualified allegiance to the united states of america and faithfully defend the united states from any and all attack by foreign or domestic forces and forsworn and forswear any form of allegiance or obedience to the japanese emperor or other foreign government power or organization answering no was not uncommon either 17 percent would answer no and the tool tool lake camp had the highest percentage and was designated as the delinquent camp because of this so they shifted the least loyal to this camp which is a little concentration-y but there were upwards of 30,000 people uh Japanese Americans that ended up serving in the military during during World War II 20,000 in the army specifically one such group was the 442nd the 442nd regimental combat team was highly decorated infantry regiment in the United States Army during World War II it was composed primarily of second generation um, Japanese Americans the Nasi or Nase soldiers who many of whom volunteered to serve despite the discrimination and internment faced by Japanese Americans at home. 442nd is renowned for its bravery and loyalty. They fought in various campaigns in Europe, including Italian and Southern France campaigns. One of their most significant accomplishments was the rescue of the Lost Battalion in the Vosges Mountains of France, a mission that came at a high cost but demonstrated their commitment and courage. Despite their exemplary service, the 442nd faced prejudice and suspicion due to their Japanese heritage nevertheless they became most decorated unit of its size and length of service in the United States military earning numerous awards including 21 medals of honor the legacy of the 442nd is a testament to patriotism and the resilience of Japanese American soldiers during the challenging period of American history altogether by the end of the war the 442nd and the 100th which was another Japanese American battalion would have almost 18,000 Nasei troops serve them and that's pretty awesome and i think that really speaks to how insanely wrong the government was in detaining all of these people like these dudes stepped up after their parents homeland bombed their new one after their new home distrusted them took them away from their little homes and they were forced to sell everything and they still stepped up and whooped ass 40 seconds motto was go for broke which i think speaks to their tenacity a little bit and also <laughs> like it's just it just suits them very well these people prove their loyalty and honestly it's kind of kind of one up the people who thought them to be traitors or spies sure you could argue that spies were all caught when the japanese people were sent to the camps and that's why nothing crazy happened but you could also argue that a bunch a bunch of people who just genuinely love their new country and do whatever that it took to prove them uh, prove that like these guys did in december of 1944 the government did coincidentally announce that the camps would be closing by the end of 1945 so it's not an accident they wanted to delay the closing of them to ensure these citizens released back into the american society did not impact the election you know the one 1945 when fdr won with like 430 electoral votes these 120,000 people were really gonna mess that up for them either way japan would have surrendered by september 1945 following the bombing of hiroshima and nagasaki this is also considered the end of the war as a whole since germany had already surrendered on may 7th of the same year as stated earlier a big chunk of the detainees left for the midwest when they were able to chicago being a big hub for them leaving the camps was also not a super easy task as they were 
making maybe $15 a month with the labor that they could do on the camps. And this translated to having very little saved, especially when they already had to sell all their belongings to get there. They didn't have anything to sell to get back. Detainees were given $25 and a train ticket to a location of their choosing, but with their former home being gone, they had nowhere else to go. But a lot of them had to start from scratch. Camps did remain open for a while, but true to their word, by the end of 1945, they had closed them all, with Tool Lake being the uh, last one remained open until March 20th, 1946. Four years after the Japanese Americans were first, first forced to evacuate their lives. June 25th, 1946, Harry S. Truman signed an executive order. Uh, 9742 which liquidated the war relocation authority who had been arranging this whole thing for the government Japanese Americans were finally free to go home only to find those homes they had left if they hadn't sold them robbed of their belongings or sold without their knowledge then in the 60s civil rights movement was in full swing and this actually enabled a lot of the now adult former children of these camps to voice their distaste for what had happened and some even in positions of government if they were a little bit older back then. In 1976, President Ford issued a formal apology for this event and called it a national mistake. He also formally terminated Executive Order 9066. He spoke on the matter saying, quote, We now know what we should have known then. Not only was the evacuation wrong, but Japanese Americans were and are loyal Americans. On the battlefield and at home, the names of Japanese Americans have been and continue to be written in history for the sacrifices and contributions they have made to the well-being and to the security of this, our common nation. The Japanese American Citizen League also began to seek reparations at $25,000 per person who was detained. This effort led to the Carter administration pushing Congress to create a commission to investigate the matter officially. Three years later, in 1983, the Commission on Wartime Re Relocation and Internment of Civilians what a mouthful that is, <laughs> released a report called Personal Justice Denied and confirmed that the survivors' accusations, essentially. The commission conducted extensive hearings, collected testimonies from Japanese-American survivors, examining the uh, government's actions during the war. The CWRIC released its findings, con concluding that the internment was not the result of military necessity, but rather stemmed from racism, wartime hysteria, and a failure of political leadership. Findings of the CWRIC laid the groundwork for the passage of the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, signed into law by President Ronald Reagan. Kind of surprising. Legislation acknowledged the injustice of the internment and provided a formal apology from the United States government. Additionally, it authorized reparations for surviving Japanese American in internees. Under the Civil Liberties Act, each surviving internee was eligible to receive $20,000 in compensation. Reparations aimed to address the material loss, trauma, upheaval experienced by Japanese Americans during their forced relocation and internment. Legislation also emphasized the importance of remembering this dark chapter in American history to prevent similar injustices in the future. The reparations, while symbolic, represented a significant step towards acknowledging the government's wrongdoing by providing a form of redress to the affected community. Beyond the financial compensation, the apology and reparations played a crucial role in fostering a broader public awareness of the internment camps, promoting a commitment to upholding civil liberties for all citizens. Didn't do a great job. I haven't heard very much about it until now. <laughs> uh, the road to reparations showcased the uh, power of collective advocacy, historical reassessment, and commitment to justice in rectifying past wrongdoings served as a reminder of the ongoing importance of safeguarding civil liberties and ensuring that the uh, that such injustices are not repeated in the future so that's that's pretty much the end of the tale i know doc asked me about the u.s internment camps of world war ii really focused on the japanese as they were like the bigger and more specific target of this campaign i hope everyone learned a lot i know i did uh <laughs> it's crazy how much inf information there is about World War II and then you just keep learning about it. history. Isn't it wild? Some of the interesting facts I learned about this one is uh, how far the Japanese immigration went like back. Also is didn't even really consider or pay attention to Japan in World War One. Maybe because their role in World War II was so massive and specific. And the 442nd Regiment combat team is also really cool like it's just an awesome fun fact that i learned today so that was that was awesome and how much they showed up for the country that had not done the same for them and one one last thing about japan is how intense they were about modernization 100 years prior to the interaction with matthew 
Perry. They had samurai running the show and 60 years from the moment they met the United States knocking on their door, they became one of the most intense opponents anyone might face. Today they lead in education, their tech is always top notch, their infrastructure seems to be incredible and everyone I have ever met that has ever been there loves it. So they're gotta be doing something right. Both teams did not do things right today however. I believe that the fog of war makes some decisions very easy to make and hindsight will always be better but good gravy these two countries made it an interesting call. Think the United States government going oh what if we test to see how loyal they are. Two years after they had taken everyone away from their homes was like holy cow dude how did you not think of that first. No trial like why this all seems the lasting impact of early racism and the same ethnic group of people had faced the whole time they'd been trying to become part of the United States. Like it stems back to it and it's not like I'm some wizard at political science or nuance. It was just right there. <laughs> and I know it was a different time but cannot wrap my head around that. Anyway, that's it for the Japanese internment camps of World War II. If I miss something or if you would like to talk about this, I guess <laughs> I'm going to be posting in the Facebook group uh facebook page instagram for your commenting pleasure the video should be up on the following wednesday after this is released so if it's wednesday and you're hearing this go comment on the youtube like and subscribe do all the stuff next week another fan submission the singing revolution more geopolitical stuff but i'm here for it the singing revolution refers to a series of non-violent protests that took place in estonia from 1987 to 1991 during this period the estonian people used music as a form of peaceful resistance against Soviet rule. The name Singing Revolution comes from the large spontaneous singing gatherings that became powerful symbols of national unity and resistance. One of the key ev uh, one of the key events was the Tallinn Song Festival in 1988 where thousands of Estonians gathered to sing patriotic songs that they had been that had been banned during the Soviet occupation. The act of singing together became a powerful expression of national identity and peace. Uh, peaceful protests against the oppressive regime the movement gained momentum and in 1991 Estonia declared its independence from the Soviet Union and the peaceful and musical nature of the revolution is unique so I'm excited if there's a topic you want to submit you can message me on any of the socials you can comment on the Facebook group or just email me remedialscholar at gmail.com you can also do the submission form on the Linktree feed which is where today's topic came from Linktree slash remedial scholar google that and you'll find it you'll find all the links there and share that with your friends too so thank you for listening thank you for being curious and we will see you next time bye